0: Welcome everyone, this is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we're gonna have an interesting dialogue with Dr. Mark McDonald, who is a psychiatrist out of uh, Los Angeles area. And he's written a book called The United States of Fear. So we're gonna dive deep into some of the um, components that contribute to that and hopefully give you some helpful suggestions. So welcome and thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you. Love to be here. Been following you for quite a while.
0: All right. Well, thanks. Um, Now, I heard in another previous interview you've done that uh, you made a really good choice. And I want to congratulate you on that. It's a difficult choice. And and that was with respect to a decision you made in your own practice. And maybe you can expand on that. And I just want to applaud your efforts, though, with respect to... um, making a decision to essentially fire some of your patients because they didn't agree with your position. So, uh, why don't you expand on that? And that'll, that'll help give us a framework of what your, um, for, uh, your position is in some, some areas. So why don't you uh, just let us know what happened then in your practice?
1: Well, what happened is that I, I made a decision around April or May of 2020 to stop keeping my larger views that don't pertain exclusively to clinical psychiatry to myself. Now I had been doing that, keeping myself um, somewhat censored and silent for a long time for a variety of reasons. One, I was in a psychoanalytic training program and one's personal views should not contaminate the space when you're doing psychoanalytic work, which I do respect and I think that's important. Another is that LA is a very politically charged climate. A lot of my patients, particularly those who would not identify as either conservative or even sincerely independent, um, tend to react in a very emotionally charged way when they uh, work with somebody who does not share their value system. And then it becomes difficult to work with them. I can't help them. Um, But I had a shift and it it really occurred um, after I noticed that there was something bigger than just politics at play with the whole rise of the pandemic. And it made me think, and it took me a while to come to this conclusion, but I did reach it after a few weeks of pondering that there really is only one way for me to be able to help my patients fully with integrity, with my my 100% sincerity. And that is by actually being um, not candid with them about what I see in the world and what I think is happening. And I, I did that, um, not for myself alone, although it does certainly help my own mental health, but I I also did it for the patients, knowing full well that some patients would probably leave or that I would have to ask them to leave. And that's exactly what happened. About 10 to 20% of my patients, they either left abruptly without saying anything and found other psychiatrists to work with, or Uh, They challenged me, they argued with me. Some of them actually attacked me personally and condemned me. A few threatened to report me to the medical board for saying such horrible things as children should be able to breathe without a mask on their face. And what I, I concluded after seeing the fallout from this is that those people who left, those people who attacked me, they really are no longer people that I can help. Because as I've said in some of my previous interviews, really good therapeutic work, at least the work that I do, starts from a position of truth and reality. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not claiming to have the monopoly on truth or reality, but I certainly value it so highly that I'm not willing to sacrifice it for someone else's emotional comfort or well-being in the moment. And since that day, April, May of 2020, I have not. And I've made a lot of people very, very uncomfortable. And some of them have decided to no longer stay in my practice but the ones that have stayed and then those who've taken their places have all been far, far more committed to the work and to getting better, to healing themselves emotionally and psychologically than any of the people that left. So I am in no way regretful that decision. I think it's made me a better clinician, a better practitioner, and most importantly, it's enabled me to continue to speaking clearly, publicly, and honestly about what I think is A much more important problem than just shots and masks, which is the state of our country and how we are being uh, controlled and manipulated by uh, corrupt individuals and corporations.
0: Well, thank you for sharing this story. And I want to applaud you on your courage to implement that um, risky decision and and, uh, certainly associated with some anxiety and fear around it for most people. And I would suspect that the vast majority of clinicians would not make that choice and decision. But I'm uh, particularly appreciative because. I did the same thing 30 years ago, and it wasn't about COVID. It was about natural medicine and the reliance on pharmaceutical, uh, medications. I had, uh, embraced and widely adopted all pharmaceuticals and got to be pretty good at diagnosing and assigning a, a drug therapy regimen for, for patients. But in the early nineties, literally over 30 years ago, I, uh, learned that this was not the right choice. And many of my patients just, we, we clearly was obviously not addressing the foundational cause of disease. So I, I sent out a letter and I, I told them that if you weren't interested in um, weaning off your medications and trying to treat this with natural approaches, then you need to find a new physician. Now there was a lot of paperwork because of uh, legal issues and abandonment and such. So I had to you know do my due diligence on that, but I had literally 50%, half of my practice leave half, and, um, but it was the best thing in the world that ever happened. Cause it's, you know, ostensibly there's a there's a lot of fear around that, but it, 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 it looks like it's the end of the world, but it was unbelievable. And then I started getting a reputation. People started seeing me from locally across the state, across the country. Then eventually from around the world, and then I stopped seeing patients about 15 years ago, but, uh, it's, it's requires a commitment and a courage to do that, but the benefits are just extraordinary. So again, congratulations on your efforts to do that. So I th- what, want to transition into um, the elephant in the room, which is COVID-19, the book that the, the condition that you wrote a book about, and I want to start off the conversation by what I believe is probably one of the most important fundamental concepts to integrate into the discussion, which is that is typically ascribed to Mark Twain, but my guess is that he stole it from someone else that preceded him perhaps by centuries, and that is, it's far, far easier to fool someone than to convince them that they've been fooled, which sort of summarizes what's been going on the last two years. They fooled us magnificently, and and they've done this primarily through the limbic emotion of fear, which is probably one of the most important, most powerful motivators for behavior. So, I, I just want to integrate, you know, kind of take a step off of there, understanding that there's been this concerted effort to deceive us so that these strategies can be implemented. And, and then, what's your take on it and how were you motivated to write this book?
1: Well, it's an interesting point. I, I never thought about that um, idea that it's easier to fool somebody than it is to convince them that they're being fooled. I completely agree with it, though. I've been focusing and what what led to the book actually was an explanation retrospectively on how this happened. Uh, I'm I'm thinking a little bit more forward at this point since I I wrote the book a few months ago. Mm -hmm. But the book itself started out with um, partly a way for me to organize my own thoughts and then also to help others organize their thoughts of how did we get to this point? Uh, We didn't wake up one morning and suddenly we were fooled. Uh, The wool was pulled over our eyes on March 15th. Uh, a lot of people feel that way. I don't mean that they they know that they're fooled, but they they feel that shift, uh, and they can denote when it happened. They suddenly woke up and became afraid and decided to stay home and comply with all these rules. But what I suspected and what I uncovered and explained in the first third of the book is that this process actually began a long time before that. Uh, you said you went out of the pharmaceutical game about thirty years ago. What we've had uh, and have been suffering from a um, slow grooming effort by uh, government, by corporations, by uh, wealthy, powerful individuals for a number of decades. Uh, It didn't start with a virus. It started a long time ago. I even go back to just post-World War II in my book with a very specific example for those who uh, were growing up during those times of the duck and cover exercises to protect against nuclear holocaust. Obviously, hiding under a desk is not going to protect you from a nuclear bomb. And yet we were all told to do this. At least my grandparents were my parents.
0: Well, you weren't you weren't involved in that? Did you get that. I was not involved in that. Oh, I I was, cleaned, I was part you know, of that. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I remember that really clearly. And cover. Well, we we did have we did have
1: uh, fire drills and things uh, that were not for fires. I forgot what they were for. Some form of natural disaster. Maybe it was a hurricane where we'd have to hide under our desks, uh, those little desks that barely cover your head. <laughs> um, this. This uh, this practice though, in my view, what it what it instilled in, in children was a sense of fear, was a sense mm-hmm. of vulnerability and a reliance on a higher power, not God, but a higher human power, usually an authoritarian power, a power of schools or officials to protect you from this uh, very um, unspecified sort of vague, uh, never to be seen, but could always arrive at any moment, fear and threat. And this has progressed over the decades. Um, not to say that I want to be very careful here because I, I, am not, I'm not saying that, that the threat of, of, a, of a nuclear attack has been non-existent. I'm also not going to say that, say that the threat of, uh, not the threat, the existence of pollution is not real. However, to say that the world will end in 12 years as it has been for the last 40 years, every 12 years uh, it's not truthful. It's not sincere. It's not. It's not genuine. It's disingenuous. The goal is to change people's behavior, not, not to help one another, but to instill a sense of compliance, to uh, uh, reallocate resources uh, towards those who have uh, control over them at the top echelons of society, um, and to make people scared. And so, the book at the beginning, at the outset of the book, my goal is to explain how did we get to be so afraid. How did we get to be so capable of being fear-struck so quickly by something that very, very early on was clearly not a significant threat to to most Americans, and even to those for whom it was a threat. As we all know, as all honest doctors know, and most of the lay public knows, there have been uh, very helpful, successful, cheap, effective treatments that essentially cured nearly 100% of the people who were struck by this virus. So why? And in laying that out in my book and explaining the the, the how and the why of how we got to this point, my hope has been that people who are perhaps not entirely brainwashed, but those who are just somewhat confused, somewhat um, perplexed, somewhat um, uh, not entirely clearly thinking but certainly want to be will help to see their thoughts organized that so they can then move to the more important step which follows that which is what do we do about it uh, and that's how I, I lay out the the rest of the book because I explain what do we do and how do we move forward um, in, an, in an outline fashion I'm going to go into more detail about that in my next book mm-hmm. um, but I really do believe and I think this is true from my medical training that in order to treat an illness in order to treat um, an infection, a uh, cancer, an emotional problem, you have to accurately diagnose it. And you have to know where it came from. If you don't know where it came from, you're just throwing the kitchen sink at it. Mm-hmm. You are not going to help your patient. You're not going to get better.
0: So it, it's interesting. I didn't realize you're, that was the motivation for writing your book, but essentially there's three groups. Those who are literally brainwashed. They've been hypnotized by the propaganda. Those who are absolutely not brainwashed and know what a fraud this is. And then this middle group. So I'm wondering, and, and the book, uh, as you just stated, is targeted towards the middle group. How, right. What percentage of the population do you think you would assign to each of those groups?
1: Well, taking out the very, very small group, which I don't address in, in the book explicitly because they're beyond hope, which are those who are actually Creating and perpetuating the evil, mm-hmm. uh, those people are, are not looking to be informed and they're not yeah. even uh, going to be deprogrammed because they're actually quite uh, conscious of what they're doing. Um, they are not, um, they are not misled. They are they are either sociopathic or truly evil or, or a combination of the two. So putting the, those people aside, it's a very small number. My experience, and it could be a bit skewed because I live in Los Angeles where Mm -hmm. uh, people have been walking around outside alone, jogging, biking with masks on from the very beginning of this nonsense. I would say that about, uh, in in Los Angeles City, uh, I believe that about uh, 80% of the population uh, is not clearly thinking. 20%, maybe maybe a bit fewer than 20% are. Of the 80% that are not thinking clearly, Mm-hmm. the ones that are are terrified, I would say that uh, at the beginning, probably three quarters of them were, were completely brainwashed. Uh, mm-hmm. Only about a quarter were uh, open to rethinking or curious. Mm-hmm. It has shifted Mm. Uh, I would say that in the last month, I'm seeing um, closer to a 50-50 split now.
0: Wow, that's encouraging. About 50-50. I,
1: I am encouraged. I, I actually was, you know, when I scheduled this uh, conversation with you, I was feeling really pessimistic. But just in the last few weeks, I think I've started to feel more optimistic, even here in Los Angeles, that starting in uh, 2022, we're going to see a tipping point where we're going to go beyond the 50-50 and more than half. More than half of the people who have been buying into this, who have been fooled, essentially, um, are going to start pushing back. Now, it may not be forcefully, not certainly as forcefully as we have, but they're going to be open and available to joining forces with those that do. And I think that's very encouraging because once you hit a tipping point, then you can start to see movement towards really helping the people who are, um, as you say, and I think it's true, uh, actually brainwashed and are simply... Mm-hmm. Currently, not open. They are not curious. Mm -mm. This is how I determine that the difference between the two groups. This is my my little diagnostic Mm. uh, technique. Does the person express curiosity
0: Mm. to
1: know something different than what he or she knows right now? If the answer is no, I don't even go further with that person in conversation. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely pointless. It's like telling somebody in motivational interviewing when we studied in medicine, who's a smoker. Mm -hmm. Do you want to know what the smoking and the tobacco and the nicotine and all of the uh, intoxicants does to your body. If the person says, no, I don't, I actually feel great with smoking. I have no problems with it. Don't lecture that person. It's a waste of your time. It's going to create more of a defensive posture. If the person says to you, you know, I've been smoking for 20 years. I used to love it. I'm starting to think that this cough is really getting to me. Now you have an end. There's curiosity. And now you can start to educate that person on the right way to move forward. But you have to have the curiosity. Without that, there's really no point.
0: Are there? That's great. I uh, didn't really appreciate the curiosity element of the of d- diagnostic differential tool. So what are some of the tips that you uh, have used to find out if there's curiosity present in the 80% who are appear here demonstrate the lack of critical thinking skills
1: it's really not that complicated uh first i have to assess whether the person is uh, emotionally present a lot of people are so utterly terrified that they're paralyzed mm. you know the, the purpose of in my view uh perpetuating this pandemic of fear uh, it's not a medical pandemic. I mean, the consequences are certainly, but initially it's not medical whatsoever. It's psychological. The reason why fear is used is that it paralyzes rational thinking. Um, it, 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 people who are terrified, people who are in a state of fear, a perpetual fear, which is kind of what trauma is, essentially, you're just constantly in a, a fear mode now of something that that may have happened in the past or that you believe has happened. The reason for that is to keep people from being able to be curious, to be able to use their mind. So if somebody is is actually paralyzed with fear and I can sense it, you seem really scared, can you tell me how you're feeling? I'm absolutely terrified, I can't leave my house. There's really not much that I can do because I know that I won't be able to even uh, open up that door for curiosity. But if I just sense anxiety, I just sense discomfort, worry, maybe worry about someone else as opposed to oneself, like their son, their daughter, their their, their grandmother. That's when I start to ask very simple questions. Well, what is it that you understand about what's happening? And then I get a sense of whether this person is conflicted, whether this person has ambivalence. Ambivalence is another word that we used to use in motivational interviewing. Assess for ambivalence. Is the person trying to hold two different opposing positions at the same time? Because that leads to a resolution.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: If there's no ambivalence at all and there's no curiosity, I don't really know where you start. So I'll ask that question: What is it that you understand right now about what's happening? And if I sense some ambivalence, if I sense some lack of uh, of, of confidence,
0: mm-hmm. then
1: I'll ask a follow up question. I'll say, Are you? Are you curious or are you interested in learning about some other information or some other viewpoints that you might not be aware of right now? And often, if I've got to that point, the person will say tentatively, yeah, maybe. If I get, on the other hand, absolutely not, or a challenging question, more of a condemnation, oh, wait a minute, what do you mean? Are you one of those those anti-vaxxer hoaxers? Then I, I know I'm probably not going to really proceed very, very, very well, very successfully. So I just I just let up, I back off, and then I I test the person out the next time and see if something's changed. The same way I would with a with a, a person who's addicted to tobacco. If someone's addicted to fear, I just have to wait and see if they're they're open and willing and ready to lose their addiction.
0: Well, I can't thank you enough. That is. Probably the pearls of the interview right there is giving us practical, simple questions and an approach to discern who we should invest our limited time and resources in dialoguing with. Because, you know, one of the things we specialize in our site is providing people with the facts, the well documented, well referenced facts, but you could have the best references in the world. Of the most prestigious uh, peer-reviewed journals, it's not going to matter at all if they, if, they, if they don't have this curiosity or this ambivalence. That's so correct. thank you so much. That is powerful. I wasn't expecting that, but wow. This is not out. a
1: data war. Uh, yeah. It's it, The data war was won a long time ago. This is a psychological war, and it really needs to be thought of that way. And I'm not in any way diminishing the efforts of those who provide the data. We need the education. We need the information. But you always have to keep in mind at, at your peril. If you don't, you always have to keep in mind that information and data is only as useful as the psychological state of the recipient.
0: Yes, indeed. Another profound truth. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, that's a, You just want to be wise when you're dialoguing with friends or relatives because you could actually worsen the situation if they're not open and receptive. So. Yes. That is the key. So thanks for that. So you've compiled all this information in the United States of fear. And there's a lot of good recommendations helping us understand what, how it came. And I think you really go deep into some of the masculinity and some of these tangential issues and transgender issues that are going on that in the masculinization of society. And, you know, mm-hmm. that's a component. So maybe you can start there and we can go into the other elements of how to uh, take the message of what you've learned and apply to our, our current circumstance.
1: So in the second third of my book, United States of Fear, I describe some of the larger cultural issues that I believe underpin this ongoing pandemic of fear. And what I believe it's, it's really leading towards, and this is my great, my great concern, it's not about vaccines and mass. I mean, this is concerning enough, but it's about what do we do next? What happens to us next? Once this um, viral pandemic disappears, And once the uh, vaccine program collapses and the masks go away, and I I know that it will eventually, what will we have left? And what will we have in our arsenal to defend ourselves against the next attack on our liberties, on our our bodily uh, integrity? My concern is that the underlying motivation of this psychological campaign has been for a long time, and it is, is still today, a attack on the core structures foundations institutions of our country now i'm only speaking about the united states because my book is about the united states of fear although this is an international problem but i don't want to expand the conversation beyond the bounds of what we can even cover succinctly in an interview but this is this is applicable to most western countries uh in, in in europe certainly in all the anglophone countries which is that there has been an attack for many many years on the core archetypes of the male and the female, the masculine and the feminine. Mm -hmm. The goal is to take away the interest, the capacity, the uh, comfort, both internally and also on a societal level, of men and women coming together, If men and women stop coming together, if they stop desiring one another, if they stop speaking to one another, if they stop uh, dating, getting married, having children, then we no longer have families. We have single parents. If we don't have families, uh, we don't have civic organizations. We don't have churches. Uh, We don't have communities. All we have are Single parents running around with their their own children, relying on most likely government to help keep them financially and physically safe. So the the role of the father, the role of the mother uh, is simply eliminated. And the state then steps in and the state supplants the role of the father and begins to take over. There is a, a young girl who had been sexually abused by her biological father for a number of years. Eventually, he impregnated her. And uh, he was arrested after a paternity test was performed in the hospital and was found that, in fact, the father of the child was the biological father of the girl. I've been reviewing her therapy notes on a legal case recently. And what I'm struck by is that now, two years later, she is still insistent that her father was unjustly taken away from her. He did not deserve to be arrested, should not be in prison. And all she really wants is to be reunited with him. You'd think this makes no sense. I mean, no sane person would want to reunite with a father who sexually abused her and gave birth, uh, impregnated her with his own child, but she does. Now, I think there's a psychological reason for it. We only have one father. We only have one mother. If our father or mother is removed, our physical, biological parent is removed, we can't replace that person. We're essentially abandoned. We're, We're lost. This girl does not want to be abandoned by her father, no matter how horrible, how evil, what of a monster he happens to be. If he's gone, then she's alone. So what happens if we, as Americans, as fathers, mothers, uh, family units, we reject the government. We tell the government we don't we don't want to be here anymore. Uh, we don't want them to be here anymore. We don't want to use the government as a way to keep ourselves safe. Mm-hmm. To be reliant on government for our money, for our sanctity. Now we have to rely on each other. Now we can do that if we have a family, if we have a community, if we have a church, we have civic civic organizations and structures. But what if we're a single mother? with a couple of children living in a, a Santa Monica apartment uh, that's being subsidized by uh, the Santa Monica uh, city government getting uh, food stamps from the state of California, from Sacramento. Well, now we can't say goodbye to government. We have to keep the government. So I really do believe, and I'm, I'm, I know this is a long chain of thoughts that I'm, I'm, I'm compacting here, but I, I do sp- explain it more fully in the book, I believe that the attacks on men and women, on masculinity and on femininity, are specifically designed to end the family units and to uh, cause all men and all women to turn towards government for their security, rather than to one another, as has traditionally been the case in this country and is what's kept the United States um, such a a strong, vibrant, powerful, uh, and largely just country uh, for the last several hundred years.
0: So you think that, is it your belief that this is an intentional plan and process? Absolutely.
1: I think this has been intentional from a long, long, long time ago. Uh, I think the feminist movement uh, largely became corrupted and derailed decades ago and is now basically an anti-woman, anti-man movement. Uh, I believe that the, um, the the welfare state is certainly not maybe perhaps at the beginning, but it has become now clearly uh, an intentional plan to thwart family uh, and to... Um, really create an impoverished class uh, of of all races uh, throughout the country that are reliant on government. I don't see um, any any way for a rational person to explain where we are now with the the vitriol, the invective, the, the, the lies about toxic masculinity and rape culture Uh, And um, the the nonsense over uh, sexual harassment that's just gone nuclear in the last few years, that any of that is an accident, that any of that is just an error in judgment or uh, one step too far. Um, I think that that, that book closed uh, years ago. I think it is so apparent to me that this is all organized, it's all planned, uh, and it's it's marching forward towards an end point, which is really going to, um, it could potentially really be the end of our society.
0: Yeah, certainly. So um, if this is not an accident, what do you believe is the ultimate intention of implementing this course of action?
1: Well, up until uh, a year or two ago, I would have said it was a, it was an American problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I did think, as many people did at the beginning uh, in spring of 2020, that this was largely a politically anti-Trump drive to discredit mm-hmm. him and cause him to lose the election. I, I, I mean, that's what all the evidence pointed to, at least that I was aware of. I know that there was other evidence that some people had access to. I did not at that time. Um, since then, um, I have... Evolved in my thinking, I don't think that this really has um, much, if anything, in the long run to do with Donald Trump. I think he was used as a foil. I also don't think that it's limited to the United States. Uh, and this has been, I think, the most dispiriting, most perplexing, most humbling aspect of what I've discovered in the last couple of years is that this problem that we're seeing in the United States the problem of um, destroying families, of attacking men, attacking women. Um, this is not a Republican Democrat issue. It's, it's not even fully a right left issue per se, although the left seems to have uh, almost an, a near monopoly on it. Not not entirely, but they seem to be certainly the biggest proponents of it because the left, which is inherently a communist or socialist movement, is anti-secular, it is anti-family, it is anti-individual uh, it is uh, sort of like the Star Trek Borg. Everybody puts on the same clothes and they all think together. Um, built, of course, on a foundation of corruption, because in, in, a, in a communist society, at least throughout history, there's been no example of one where everybody actually was equal. There's always a group at the top that's, that's pilfering off of the, the group below. And that's why ultimately it collapses. Never has been successful. What I think has happened is that this has gone global. And this really disturbs me because um i have I have largely lost faith and confidence in humanity as a whole. I have faith and confidence in humans and in individuals, but as humanity as a whole i I have lost actually quite a degree of uh, of faith. I believe that although there have always been corrupt individuals, we've seen corrupt rulers throughout human history. The fact that humans as a group have allowed them in the last couple of years now to gain such a foothold and an ascendancy through their own compliance voluntarily uh, says to me that um, humanity does not have, at least not now, the um, inherent capacity to resist uh, true evil to the degree that uh, I believe that it had. And so I was mistaken. And this is what's led me to have some, depending on the day, different feelings and views towards uh, the possibility for a way out. I do not believe right now that the way out is to wait for um, a messiah, to wait for, say, another Donald Trump to show up, another great uh, uh, individual that's going to come down from on high politically, uh, who's going to lead us uh, towards the promised land. I don't think that that's realistic. I think that the way out, if we, if we find our way out, is going to be from the grassroots, it's going to be from the ground up, it's going to be from not an evolution, but a, almost a transformation, um, a, a, a rising from the ashes, essentially, mm-hmm. of an old society that has essentially become corrupt, almost like the public school system in the United States, which I, th- I think it's unsalvageable. I don't think it can be fixed. We need to build a new school system. We need to build a new banking system, a new food system, a new supply delivery system. Um, We need to build um, a new political system. All of these systems need to be basically rebuilt. And they're not going to be rebuilt by a leader. They're going to be rebuilt by the people. And that's going to require international cooperation. So far, the United States still is really the only country that has the capacity to do this. So if the United States falls, I think it's over. I don't think there's really any hope left. That's why it's so important that the United States come out of this better than they than they were. It's so important that the United States, the, the American people, actually come together and throw off this this corrupt cabal of of power and structure, so that they can rebuild. And I I I now have some hope and optimism actually that it's going to happen next year, um, but it's not a sure thing. Um, and if it doesn't happen, I think we're going to look at a, a forward to a very, very dark, dark period of time that's going to last well beyond this winter. It's going to go on for years or decades. I don't know if we'll ever really be able to get out of it.
0: All right, well, let me just place this in context because as we're recording this interview, it's the end of 2021. So when you said next year, you were referring to 2022. Correct. Uh, so I, I agree with virtually everything you said. and, and Embrace with a high degree of confidence that it's that's accurate, except for your sort of ambivalent focus on losing faith in humanity because it's, it's hard to understand how you could lose faith in humanity. and still hold the hope. That there's going to be a nucleus of people to come together out of the Phoenix and put this back together, uh, which I, I believe is probably what's likely going to happen. And I suspect that the U.S. is going to self-destruct. I, it seems almost inevitable. I don't know if there's any way out, uh, but but there's going to something's going to come up from the ashes, and that's 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 to me is the most rational view of what the op, the, the ideal optimal. The rational optimistic view <laughs> yeah, yeah it's it's pretty pretty pessimistic all but but part of you know, and I think it that be wise to delve into some of the reasons why we hold this relatively pessimistic view, and it, at least from my perspective, it's the fact that there has the technology. I've been embracing technology for decades, which is one of the reasons why my site has gotten so popular because I've embraced it very early on I was an early adopter I was online in nineteen in. Actually, in, in the Internet, I was online in the late 70s uh, and, you know, had my website in the late late 90s. So. It's it, I've embraced technology for most of my life, and it's really and it's accelerated at an exponential pace and it provides us with so many benefits. But the, along with the benefits comes the downsides and these downsides have been dramatic and I think have really led to the people who are responsible for this decline to have the most powerful and sophisticated tool propaganda tools that were ever created in the history of the world we thought mk ultra was good and the cia uh, having project mockingbird in the 70s, 60s and 70s but it it is exponentially increased since then and it, and it has increased to the point where people are absolutely unaware that's going on it's all stealth and so they brainwashed it and i think that's that's what This effective brainwashing, which I want to get back to, is is really responsible for this highly pessimistic view because it works. I mean, they have really captured the minds of the majority of the population. And you're even in your optimistic projection with 80% of L.A. captured, it may be down to half. So, you know, it's 40, 50%. It's 50, 50 now currently. So, uh, I mean, that's my view. And I wonder what your thoughts are on what led to this disaster that we are embracing.
1: I completely agree with you about the technology aspect. I I love technology too, um, but I'm starting to see such a downside to it uh, that I'm starting to feel ambivalent about it. Um, I'm just thinking about the, it's a terrible, (laughs) terrible, Movie on, on so many levels, but the most recent James Bond film that came out um, about the genetic coded uh, bioweapon uh, and how it was meant to target uh, bad people, but of course it started to target good people as all of those weapons, too. <laughs> but it just, it's just the thought just came to mind because of how, wow, what a great benefit technology would be. We no collateral damage, we could seamlessly target. Uh, mass murderers and psychopaths without hurting a soul, and they just drop dead in a matter of seconds right before our eyes while they're having coffee uh, at Starbucks in Vienna. Uh, no bombs, no missiles, no no um, no toxins, uh, complete and utter direct surgical precision. And yet, of course, uh, the end of the world uh, almost arrives because of that weapon. This is what's happened with all of the uh, social media technology and the agglomeration of power over a small number of individuals uh, who have essentially absolute power, which has absolutely corrupted them. Um, I think that if you look at this analogously to government, you know, the United States, uh, the founders were geniuses. Uh, They understood Mm -hmm. that placing power in the hands of one group of people or one individual is is like... um, bringing up a new king. Now, that king may be a wonderful person, but what about his son? What about his in-laws? What happens when he gets executed and someone else takes over? Now you're back to the cycle of corruption. So they created a balance of power. They also decentralized the power. They spread it out over 50 states. That has largely kept the United States um, protected from being taken over by corrupt forces. Why are we losing that now? Because the power is being reconcentrated. And the power in technology and social media has been reconcentrated. If the power were spread out, it would be very, very difficult for this type of brainwashing to occur because there would be enough counterbalance, there'd be enough um, dispersion of the corruptive influence that truth and honesty and uh, the, the forces for good would actually have a foothold. They don't. I mean, Parlor was destroyed a year ago because uh, two men up in Silicon Valley flipped a switch and 30 million voices were, were silenced. I mean, this has never been possible before, never. So what I have been thinking about as far as a way forward or a way out, how to overcome the brainwashing, This is going to be, I know this is going to sound dark, but I I always prefer to be honest and truthful than than blowing smoke up somebody's rear and and trying to just make people feel good for the sake of it. I, I believe right now that because so many people have been brainwashed and many of them don't see or feel the pain and the injury that they've become complicit in provoking, that it will take a personal loss profound and significant for those who are still brainwashed to be able to actually come out from the brainwashing and start to think clearly again. And what I mean by that is perhaps the loss of a child to a vaccine injury, uh, the loss of a parent who's denied hospital treatment for heart failure because he decided not to get a vaccine, Um, the complete economic collapse of the home, the community, or perhaps even the country, Uh, because we are are allowing ourselves to no longer work and believe that somehow productivity will happen somewhere else by some other other person, not by us. We may wind up, as is what's happening in LA, towards a a complete state of absolute anarchy, where uh, wealthy people in the Palisades, in Malibu, in Beverly Hills, um, are now being robbed, raped, and murdered uh, by gang members in this in the same way that they are in the favelas in Brazil. Uh, this has never happened in my lifetime in Los Angeles. I was born and raised here. This type of crime wave, not not just with the poor people out in the ghetto, but among the wealthy class, the ones that are voting in all of the people who are pushing this corruption and this technological brainwashing. So. Even though I don't wish for this to happen, I believe that it may be requisite that those who are helping support this brainwashing actually suffer significant personal losses in their own lives before they wake up and pull the support from it.
0: Well, that would make sense in a rational world. <laughs> but I think I strongly believe, disagree with that because I believe that brainwashing has been so effective that. And I've seen personal examples of this where they they will absolutely abandon any tether to critical thinking skills. They they can have a relative, a a spouse, a sibling, a child of theirs die literally within hours or minutes or even with the the syringe still in her damn arm, dead and they'll say it's just a side effect just a coincidence that's how severe it is and this is not the first time in history that this has occurred i mean it's the first time with a pandemic but there's clearly examples in germany and russia where people from the these parties that were in power literally they to, to demonstrate things they would they would have other members of the power who were totally aligned and made no no uh, sins of their party but they were they were accused of being uh doing some evil crime and they admitted it fully and embraced it and were happy to die for for the party. So, I mean, that is the extent of the brainwashing. And you had mentioned, too, that the the concept that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely alluding to the fact that uh, these tech entities like Google and Facebook being the two primary examples fell to this. But I would contend that, it yes, that, that is generally true, but these entities. But these were not the, the you know, it wasn't a, a a college sophomore who started this Facebook thing. I mean, yes, he was, but there, it was, it goes far deeper than it wasn't two grad students at Stanford that started Google that, that, it, that with good intentions. And it just, they got so much power that it's corrupted. No, these institutions were, des- they were funded and started by the CIA. They were, so this is all planned and designed. This is not about apps. it's any if it's about absolute power corrupting it's about the power that these these secret services have and these in the in the government institutions of the world and not just the United States the
1: only way for this degree of evil to exist and for it to have such a a strong um, grip over the country is for the power to be concentrated, and mm-hmm. if we can deconcentrate that power, I mean, even if we had, for example, a, a, a I don't
0: disagree a with that. Day. That 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 makes sense. But I'm just suggesting that that didn't happen by accident. This was designed. I agree. It's it's yes. designed, and it, does, it wasn't due to these, these individuals who somehow acquired power in a concentrated. No, it was be, done decades before that. It was part of the design, and technology allowed them to do it. Well, this is what
1: gets, gives rise to another question, which I would have answered very differently a year ago, but I'm asked very frequently, which is, is this um, simply corruption, meaning I want more money, I want more power, um, or is there something more sinister? Is there? Um, at least a sociopathy, or perhaps even an existence of evil behind it. Two years ago, I would have said, that's absurd. Maybe there's mm. a few sociopathic individuals. Certainly there's nothing evil. I don't believe in the devil. I'm now starting to wonder that, that this, this goes beyond just simple human corruption, just, just greed. You know, Greed is so banal. Um, I want more for myself. That, that seems like such a, a relatively innocuous vice given what we're seeing as the consequences of these decisions, I am I am now open, as I never have been, to the possibility of the existence of evil, of a force which is actually at play driving these individuals to commit such acts of horrible evil. And it is evil. The outcomes are evil. They are not errors. And they are orchestrated. That's That's what leads me to being so... Um, uh, questioning now of these um, explanations that involve simply errors or, or isolated corruption, there is something so so beautifully um, precise and well connected and enduring about how all of these actions have come together in the last couple of years that it 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 leads me to think that there must be some sort of a force or a power at play that goes beyond simple human
0: frailty i couldn't agree more and i want to commend you for your highly highly unusual characteristic of being open minded and and using your very gifted critical thinking skills to come to these interpretations and shifts of your opinion with new data points. My guess is way less than 5% of physicians and probably less than 1% of physicians would make those shifts that you have already done. So congratulations, you're a rare minority. But having said that, Let's use that brain power of yours and give people some hope on what I mean, you have alluded to some things. But let's give some practical things because you I'm sure you have you've you've mentioned some in your book, but even since you've written the book, I'm sure you've developed a few more. So what can people do going forward? Well, I'm going to put all of this together in another book
1: that I'm going to actually start to write uh, in the next few weeks. Um, some of the ideas or or treatment recommendations that I've come up with have, grown out of a a consolidation and evolution of my viewpoints in the last couple of years about um, which groups of people are amenable to treatment and which are not. And making it it very simply put, and you introduced this earlier, there's a group that are completely brainwashed Mm -hmm. and a group that are simply scared, but they'd like to not be scared. The brainwashed group Um, in the same way that we would treat a cult, cannot be treated voluntarily. I cannot provide information, education, counseling, or even a book for them because they will not listen. They will not read it. They don't want to because I am an enemy. You are an enemy. Anybody that provides truth and hope and information is the enemy. The only ally that they have is the guru. Just as a cult is closed off locked away, their family members completely separated from them, their physical surroundings uh, completely closed off and isolated. And the only person that they believe has their back is the man sitting in the the tall chair with the shaved head and the robe uh, up in the front of the room. These people will only listen to and take commands from Anthony Fauci, from Joe Biden, from uh, Don Lemon, people in media, people in politics, people in, um, in bureaucratic government. And nothing will change their mind. Absolutely nothing. As you said, they could see people dying around them, their own parents, their own children, and they would still go take another shot. Mm-hmm. They are lost. Unless and until they are physically removed or kidnapped, essentially, in the way that we would with a cult to a remote location where they can be deprogrammed. And I am not in that business. So that's Mm -hmm. not the group that I'm
0: speaking to. That that doesn't work in a triage situation because we've got way too many of those
1: individuals. That's exactly the problem. You know, I'm an individual therapist. I can work with one person at a time. I can't work with 100 million people. Let's say it's not 100 million. Let's say it's 20 million. It's still-
0: No, it's closer to 100 than it is to 20.
1: (laughs) No question, at least. Whatever the number is, it's far more than we have individual treaters for. We we know that. So I'm not speaking to that group. I have to be realistic. As you said earlier, we have to be um, practical and efficient with how we use our time. We, we don't want to preach to the choir, uh, but we also don't want to try to uh, go after people who, as I said earlier, are so closed off, lacking curiosity, utterly brainwashed. They're not going to listen. It's useless. It's pointless. So that leaves the other group, which is the, the open-minded, maybe scared, maybe anxious, curious group. I would call these people uh, the, the fear addicts who want to lose their addiction. It's like the alcoholic who says, you know, I am kind of curious about that AA meeting at the church I walk by every day on my way back home from work. When does it start? You know, what what do I need to bring? How do I sign up? Those are the people that I want to reach out to with the next book. So the paradigm really is is a 12-step program to overcoming fear on an individual and national level. And the first step, as we all know with the AA program, is that we have to admit that we have an addiction. The individual has to admit that he or she is addicted to fear. Because without losing the fear, those people are not going to move forward. Fear is the obstacle to being able to think and act rationally. So the fear has to be overcome. But in order to overcome fear, you have to admit that you're addicted to it, that this is not something that you want to hold on to. I am fearful. Yes, I am. I admit it. Hi, my name is Mark, and I'm a fear addict. And therefore, I want to overcome it. I want to release it. I don't know how yet, but I definitely want to do it. That is my goal. That is my motivation. That's why I'm here at the meeting. That's why I'm reading Dr. McDonald's book, because I want to overcome fear. Tell me how to do that. That's the first step. That's the very, very first step is acknowledging that you are addicted to fear and that you want to overcome it. And then from there, there's other things that you can do. One of them, which I don't think anyone has really talked about much, is you need to embrace humor. Mm-hmm. Humor is what allows us to have a perspective. Without a perspective, we're like um, uh, you know, a sailor looking through uh, a, a monoscope. Everything is just focused on one little target off in the distance. We lose everything around us. We lose our, our, our context. Uh, we're unable to assign um, value and priority to things. Everything becomes about cases, death, cases, death, shots, masks. The only way, well, I shouldn't say the only way, one of the best ways to step away from that is to actually develop humor and to embrace it and to start to laugh again, to tell jokes, to see the lighter side of our time here. We're we're not here um, just to exist. We're here to live. We're here to live fully. We're we're here to live a full life, not a long life. Now, hopefully it'll be long too, but I would much rather live the short full life than a long one devoid of meaning. And humor is part of that. That's something else that I'm gonna explore really deeply in this book, because I think it's such an important part of my life and how I work with patients, developing that sudden sense of perspective that allows them to um, embrace more curiosity. Another, and this is true for the addict of any disease, they must cut themselves off from media, at least temporarily, mm-hmm. because media is what's fueling the addiction. Think about the dealer where you, where you get your, your crack from on the corner. Now, if I'm not an addict, I can walk by a dealer twice a day and I'm not going to actually start to, to use. But what if you are? You've got to stop going to your dealer. You've got to leave the dealer and never see him again, at least at least not until you're certain that the addiction is over permanently. And maybe you'll be addicted to it forever, like the alcoholic that doesn't drink, but as soon as he walks past the bar, he goes inside and drinks again. He has a chronic condition. Well, if you have a chronic fear condition, you have to avoid the dealer forever, which means you've got to cut off all of the media sources. I'm going to go through a lot of other steps as well as I elucidate them, but these are some of the ones that I think are very important for people to consider admitting that you have a problem and desiring to end it, developing uh, or at least embracing humor, uh, avoiding uh, the dealer of the fear, which is largely speaking the media, and also returning to what's around you. Stop cutting yourself off from people. You may be embracing people who are also fearful. Hanging out with alcoholics is not the best way to stop drinking. Go to people who are sober. Go to people who stop drinking. Build friendships, relationships with people who don't have the addiction to fear. You might not. You might wonder to yourself, well, what would I have to do in common with these people? All of my friends used to drink all day long. What would I talk about with somebody if I wasn't holding a beer with them? Well, you know what? There's things that we all talk about when we're not drinking. So spend time with people who are not addicted to the fear. You'll discover an entire world that does not... Uh, revolve around uh, viruses, injections, masks, and shutting down schools and businesses. There's a whole life out there to be embraced. And it's so much more pleasurable, so much more enjoyable, so much more um, rejuvenating than shooting up with fear. So i think this is a good start um i'll 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 flesh this out in more detail we'll have to have
0: you on for their next book so i'm sure you're familiar with matthias desmet who's a phd out of belgium excellent and uh so he he he's for those who we've run a few of his videos before but he has this whole concept of mass formation which is a delusional psychosis that is there when you have certain preconditions like the social isolation, and this free-floating anxiety, uh, and uh, a sort of an ineptitude and feeling helpless that you can't do anything. But one of his solutions, it seems, that recommends, and, and he's convinced, by the way, that it's all gonna collapse. He's totally convinced it's gonna collapse. But ultimately, one of the things you can do for the people that, you know, the, the remnant that's gonna rise out of this, Is to substitute, I'm wondering what your opinion is on this. It's to substitute the fear. So they have this fear of uh, a rational fear of uh, essentially a relatively innocuous virus and the fear of death. So do you think it's possible to replace this with the rational fear of global tyranny and being a perpetual slave, the entire human race being subjugated to slavery for the remainder of time? That's an interesting point.
1: I I have not heard that from him. Um, I do fully embrace his theory, which he he came to the same conclusion I did independently. He calls it mass formation. I called it mass delusional psychosis, based on this uh, free-floating, untethered anxiety, um, a sense of helplessness, and also um, a disconnection from other people and a lack of meaning in one's life. Mm-hmm. These are all the, the prerequisites, as he put it in his video. Uh,
0: so what, was it- what- like the ingredients of a recipe, if you have those things, yeah, it's right. you you're going to be hypnotized. It's just exactly. gonna happen. Exactly. Targeted for disaster for this.
1: I, I completely agree. You know, I, I wrote about the cultural prerequisites in my book, as I explained earlier in our conversation just now. He described it in purely psychological terms, although there's also cultural overlay, you know, lack of meaning, disconnected family. Well, how does that happen? Uh when you don't really know what your purpose is as a man when you uh, don't have a, 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 a nuclear family, you lose family relationships when you're cut off from your friends because of political differences. So we kind of reach the same endpoints from, you know, different starting points, but I completely agree with them. Um, the idea of hypnosis is also very interesting. I've studied clinical hypnosis. Um, as we all know, in stage performances, uh, the uh, hypnotist will bring on a dozen people on the stage try to suggest different things to 12 people. And then he'll gradually pick off five, six, seven, eight, nine of them, send them back to the audience when he diagnoses them as non-suggestible. And then he keeps two or three who are, and those people usually perform beautifully throughout the hypnosis on stage. I think that's also true. I think that there are people, Americans, humans around the world who are just, for some reason, they are more easily suggestible And so they are more prone to a hypnotic trance. And I think there is a kind of hypnotic trance going on right now in the world. Um, Those people just have an inherent suggestibility. The idea that we could supplant the fear of death with a fear of totalitarian control is an interesting one. I'm not sure that I agree with that for the following reason. I think one of the reasons why people have become so compliant, especially in the Western countries, in the, the more affluent, um, the more kind of technologically connected, interpersonally disconnected societies, is that we have largely lost the, I would call it almost, almost intrinsic, uh, certainly from a, from a modern point of view, intrinsic revolt and push back against being controlled by a higher non-godlike authority. Mm-hmm. I think that people today, they do not crave freedom intrinsically.
0: Mm. I think
1: they crave being taken care of. Mm. And this has been one of the great strengths of totalitarian regimes throughout the 20th century is that they have offered security at the expense of freedom. And people have largely embraced it, at least at the beginning, before all of the camps started and the executions, because they don't see the end point of the loss of freedom. They see the immediate benefits of security of being taken care of. I don't have to go to work every day. I can get my coffee delivered by a stranger with a mask on. I can zoom it in off of my computer. I can get uh, EBT cards sent to me uh, by mail. And I can go to the store and buy steaks with them because the government just keeps providing me with money. This is this is wonderful. This is such an easier life. This is like going back in time to the day I was born, and every need that I had was taken care of. My diaper got wet; it was changed. I needed uh, sustenance. My stomach was empty. I got a, a nipple in my mouth and, and warm milk. I cried. I was held. I was swaddled. What what wonderful time that was. Now. I had no freedom. I was at the mercy of the mother, but wow, what a life, what an easy life, no responsibility. And I was at the center of the world. It was heliocentric. Mm -hmm. You know, I I, I was at the middle and everything revolved around me, just like humans thought that the earth revolved around uh, the, the the sun revolved around, around the earth for for thousands of years. So there's something psychologically um, hardwired into us to want to embrace something simple, something easy, uh, give away our autonomy to uh, a higher authority that is a state that will take care of us, and of course, it always turns into a totalitarian system, and end up people end up dying, being murdered. We have mass starvation, executions. We've seen it time and time again throughout the 20th century, and uh, I know that um, Matthias Desmond he studies totalitarianism, so. I am, I guess, surprised without knowing more about his theory than what you just told me, that he would believe that human beings would psychologically be inclined to express a fear of totalitarianism over a fear of death. Because I would say, from my experience as a clinician, it's just the opposite. People are actually far more scared of death of losing security, of losing so-called protection from the state, than they are of losing all of their liberties and all of their freedoms, and ultimately just being fed into a meat grinder for society's uh, despots.
0: No, I think you're right. I, the assertion that I claimed that thought was his was actually what I think he backed on was was uh, paraphrasing of Robert Malone's views of what Desmond was saying. Uh, I think that may have been Robert's. Yeah. So, But it, you make perfect sense. I mean, we have this intrinsic uh, capacity to have this benevolent source looking after, which is our parents. You know, we're truly looking out for our own good. Uh, and we transfer, this is, is an element of transfers, right? To the state. And and Absolutely. anything couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, it's the, the diametrical opposed opposite. So uh, that makes perfect sense. And, and it actually, it also makes sense that you know, it's it's almost like seeking to uh, provide a rational argument to someone who's who's hypnotized. It's not going to work. I mean, it's just another. You're trying to substitute another another greater evil. They're not going to comprehend it. They just they, they they lack the critical thinking skills to make that decision.
1: I think at its core, it's it's kind of like a it's a cheat. You know, the totalitarian system offers a cheat. Um, it says stop believing in a, stop believing in a higher power that isn't real, which is God
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and believe in a higher power, which is, which is me and the party. I can offer you the potatoes. I can offer you the the guards. I can offer you the land. Of course, it's stolen from, from those filthy rich, but you're going to get it because you deserve it. I can offer you all of that right now. What can God offer you? Have you talked to God yet? Did, did God protect you from the death of your child uh, from malaria last week? No, of course not, you can't rely on him. Well, you can rely on me. It's, a, it's almost like a devilish um, kind of Faustian play that these, these totalitarian despots always engage in, but people fall for it. And this is one of the reasons I believe why every communist system, every dictatorship essentially attacks all forms of religious worship and organization. They need a secular society because when there is a the higher power above the state that people believe in or rely on, it diminishes the absolute power of the state and it, it brings it into context. And the context is that it's flawed, that it's just as flawed as the power that my neighbor has, because totalitarian regimes are still run by human beings. They're not run by angels, they're not run by God. And if we can remove God from the picture, now suddenly the whole whole hierarchy shifts and the top power becomes the state and there's nothing above the state. This is, I I don't think there's any exception to this. And this is another reason why the attack on the church and, and the attack on, let's say Christmas, for example has been so ongoing in the last couple of decades. When was the last time you heard Merry Christmas? Everyone says happy holidays now. Every business does, every email greeting. We don't want to use the word Christmas because that would imply that there might be a power other than the state that confers its authority over us. Now, I'm not here to proselytize. I'm not here to tell people they need to go to church. That's not my point. My point is that whether you believe or not in God, whether you're affiliated or not with a church, you cannot deny that a godless society is a worse society. And that a society that has religion in it is a more robust, healthier, happier, more productive, and more inoculated society, inoculated against totalitarian rule.
0: And resilient. I think that was the word.
1: And resilient, 100%. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, because, yeah, it's an important part of of life. (laughs) I think it's the central core. It really is what provides you with the power and the confidence that you can tackle this incredible evil that's presented itself uh, to us. So I couldn't agree more. Wow, you've got some really good ideas. I didn't realize you went so deep into totalitarianism. That's been one of my interests in in light of what they're trying to do, because it's obvious. So hopefully hopefully examining some of the historical precedents can give us some clues as to what their next steps are, and and more importantly, some of the preventive, proactive actions we can take to prevent them from being successful
1: go speak to an immigrant from a a former totalitarian regime. I speak to them every day. Moldovans, uh, Russians, uh, Soviets, Mm -hmm. uh, Poles, Hungarians, Czechs, Slavs, uh, Cubans, Venezuelans, um, mainland Chinese, Hong Kong. These
0: people are in your practice?
1: Uh, These are either in my practice, people that I have met through my talks, uh, specifically at churches who have approached me and spoken to me personally, and also my personal circle of friends that pre-existed this pandemic. Um, I am in multiple chat groups with, I would say, a dozen doctors from former totalitarian regimes in Central and Eastern Europe. Um, I also have several patients uh, who are from uh, the Central and South American uh, uh, despotic regimes. Lots of Cuban immigrants. Um, I know several from Africa, actually, uh, from uh, totalitarian regimes in Northern Africa, uh, all over the world. And I've I've had these people in my life for a number of years. And there's more that have now come into my life in the last year and a half because what I say resonates with them mm-hmm. because they've lived this.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So. And I've also traveled and lived in other countries. I lived in Europe for a year when I was a teenager in Switzerland. I've lived in Japan for a couple of years. I've traveled throughout Central America, uh, Colombia, and Costa Rica, and Panama. Um, I, I spent quite a bit of time in Mexico. Uh, I've studied French, uh, Japanese, Spanish, and, and, and some other languages at a much simpler level. Just know a few phrases, but I speak the other languages pretty well. So I have a pretty good um, chronic ongoing exposure to people who have lived outside of the protected, idyllic, uh, Western democratic state. Mm -hmm. And they know better than anyone what this is like, because they've actually grown up in it. And I hear their stories constantly. So if you believe that totalitarianism is not possible in a Anglophone country, or in Western Europe, or in the United States, uh, or you don't understand it, or you don't know much about it, ask somebody that you know, who's from one of those countries I just mentioned, you will, you will hear some of the most compelling personal stories, far more than you'll get by just reading a history book, which I also recommend. But some of the most personally compelling stories that will change the way that you see the world and your country immediately.
0: Mm. That's uh, good sage advice because it's um, you know we haven't seen in this country and we you know we've been blessed with the two over two centuries two and a half centuries now of, of freedom that was generated from our ancestors uh, freeing themselves from King George in seventeen seventy six mm-hmm. so uh, and we just you know I think was it Ben Franklin that says if uh, Oh, I forgot the quote, but if you don't, if eternal vigilance is the is the price of liberty, of or some, something to that effect. Where if you if you're not pers- persistently seeking to guard it, you're going to lose it. You're going to lost. Lose it.
1: One generation, you can lose yeah. it in one generation if that generation is uh, inured to history.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And we see it. I see it in my young patients, my adolescent and young adult patients. They don't even. Not only have they not fought in a war, they haven't even studied war.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: They don't know what war is. They think war is about fighting racism. I mean, that's <laughs> the idea of what you no, know, and then the war, the war on women. I mean, mm-hmm. they're they're all they're all they're all about that. We've got we've got, to, we've got to join in that war to to stop the war on women. But an actual war, they have no clue. Uh, they spend their time on their phones, uh, getting food delivered. Uh, they do all of their work through Zoom um they uh they they live essentially in an actual physical bubble inside of their apartment um and they don't read uh they get all of their information through a phone which of course is fed to them by yahoo news and apple news and google and facebook and twitter and snapchat and tiktok that is all the information that they get 100% they don't travel I'm not exaggerating you know some people that, that talk to me say oh that's it's not really like that with the younger generation oh it is trust me it is certainly in the urban areas now i'm i'm not speaking about the midwest and and suburbs but in, you go to an urban center this is the way that they live so this generation if this generation does not um become educated either through formal education or through sort of personal experience talking with people, as I said, having conversations with others who've lived through this this kind of horror, uh, we will lose our liberty because they will not defend it. They do not believe in liberty. They really don't. Uh, They believe that socialism is about being sociable. They literally believe that. And they are willing to give up anything, including the right to their own bodily integrity, unless, of course, it has to do with abortion, in which case we can't give that up. But anything other than abortion, they, they believe that the state has every right to tell them what to do with their bodies, 100%. So this is going to be a lost cause unless this generation either wakes up or gets figuratively smashed over the face with a frying pan, realizing what they're about to lose.
0: So what age do you think this transition occurs? I mean, this is a 20-year-old, 30-year-old, 40-year-olds?
1: It has specifically to do with the advent of the smartphone.
0: Okay, so that was... 10 years ago, if you look at the iPhone, yes. the generation one. Correct. Uh, I mean, we've Absolutely had we've had phones before then, of course, but mm-hmm. the, the one access to the internet would be the iPhone. That, was the that's, most,
1: that to me is the biggest line 2007, of-
0: 2007, which would be a little less than 15 years.
1: I remember that very well because that's when I graduated from medical school and I got my first iPhone, the iPhone 1, when I was mm-hmm. going to uh, residency. Uh, in uh, in Cincinnati, I moved from Milwaukee to Cincinnati, and I got that phone, uh, and that was 2007, and that was the date. If you just sort of go back to like look at the age of of people, different ages of people in 2007, and you see now moving forward, we're at what 12 plus through 15 years. So that that point, 15 years ago, was really when it all started. So if you were able to develop and mature before that, I Exactly. before two thousand and seven, you have some capacity to um, to make judgments and and to use your personal experience to counter some of the effects of the of the of the smartphone. If you didn't, if you grew up with that phone and that's your your primary source of um, your tool really on how to mm-hmm. access information, how to relate to the outside world rather than books or libraries or uh, even um, you know magazines, newspapers, conversations, if all of that, that i just listed if that didn't didn't if you weren't ex, if you weren't exposed to that but rather to the phone first and foremost that's how i would define the the starting point of of that generation
0: yeah so about 25 to 30 years old i would suspect and what percentage of that population do you think is embracing the concepts you just mentioned is it like the half, 75% the bad concepts or the good concepts yeah the fact that the lack of appreciation of liberty and uh, you know the fact that it can happen to them Literally within years, and and the 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 lack of appreciation of what war really is. Given
1: from my patient population, just looking at sort of roughly speaking, I would say about twenty percent of those up till say their late twenties are appreciative of history, uh, what's actually happening right now, and what we're about to lose. The other eighty percent, they either Um, don't care, or they are unaware, or even worse, uh, within that 80%, there's a large number, I would say, that actually support the removal of liberties. Uh, They use language, which is uh, like, it's like Orwellian language. Uh, Mm -hmm. They will, without thinking, without uh, a hint of irony, Uh, They will throw out terms like social justice, um, which means really discrimination uh, or revenge. Uh, They'll use the word uh, equity rather than equality, uh, which is um, just another term for discrimination. Um, If you just politely, uh, you know, sort of with a sense of curiosity, just ask them uh, what the difference is between justice and social justice, equity or inequality, um, masculinity versus toxic, toxic masculinity, they don't even understand what the point of the question is. Uh, <laughs> what is socialism? They can't define it. Uh, is there a problem with it? Well, why would there be? I mean, there is, there is almost like a blank stare that comes out of their, their, their face. They're not trying to argue with you. They, they aren't. They, they literally don't understand what you're asking. It's that bad.
0: So 80% is a pretty high number. And I'm wondering, uh, well, of course, you're in your practices in Los Angeles, California, Correct. It's the, it's the, a bel- filter- the belly of the beast, yeah. the belly of the beast. Yeah. So what do, what do you think the numbers would be if your practice was in Texas or Florida?
1: Well, this is actually where I derive some hope. Um, I agree with uh, the theory that the civil war that we have right now, and we are in a civil war, no no doubt about it. It it hasn't turned largely violent, but we are in a civil war, a cultural civil war. It's not really a state to state war. It it is to some degree, you have Republican, Democrat, you have Florida versus New York, you have Texas versus California. In in gross, that's true. But if you look at it in a more um, uh, subtle way, a more detailed way, I really believe that the cultural civil war is occurring between the urban and the rural. Mm. not the state versus the state. And I say that because I travel a lot. Um, I go up and down California and the coast, the inland. I go out into the Central Valley, out into the suburbs. If you leave the large urban areas in California, which is like New York in terms of its top down, you know, Democrat control, no liberty type of state, you will see one of the most amazing transformations of culture that you've ever witnessed. You only have to drive about an hour Outside of Los Angeles, and the culture is utterly different. It's it's like 180 degrees different. And I've been recently to uh, city of Austin, suburbs of Austin. Uh, I've been. That's city a million
0: these <laughs> Austin.
1: <laughs> exactly. You, you, really you, bad news. You get out of the airport, and all you see are um, uh, soy boys with uh, uh, beanies and uh, Birkenstocks uh, and plaid shirts and beards. Uh, swilling a uh, cold brew in front of uh, homeless encampments. And then you go 30 minutes outside the city and you're surrounded by the likes of uh, Mickey Willis and Laura Logan and Joe Rogan uh, mm-hmm. and uh, Dale Bigtree and this whole group of people. Uh, I, I filmed uh, with 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 Mickey a few weeks ago for Pandemic 3, and I, I met several of these people at his home. They all live there. Mm-hmm. You know. It's, it's like a, a whole separate society, just 30, 40 minutes outside of the Berkeley of Texas. <laughs> so, so when people say, well, you know, Texas is great, or, you know, Texas is all, you know, gone left. Well, they're both right.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: They're both right. It depends on where you go in Texas. It's the same thing in Florida. Miami is very, very different from the panhandle or even from Tampa. Mm-hmm. You go to uh, New York, upstate New York. Are you kidding? It has nothing to do with New York City, Manhattan. Might as well be a separate country. Mm -hmm. Same thing in California. Look at Washington. Eastern Washington state is literally voting to secede, to become part of Idaho. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: But Seattle is in Washington, is it not? Mm -hmm. And the governor of the state months ago ordered outdoor mask mandates for all, all residents over age two in perpetuity. So you're looking at what sounds like this, this hugely backwards, complex, a schizoid type of, of of breakout within states, but it actually is very, very logical. If you think about what I had written in my book and what I said earlier in our conversation, which is that it's a culture war. Mm-hmm. It's not just political, it's cultural. And the culture, which has the following, and I'll just use a woman, a woman as an example, a married, religious conservative, rural woman is going to be entirely different than a single, divorced or not, single mother, non-church-going, liberal or left-leaning urban woman in the United States. They're completely different. And because they're completely different, you're going to see a different community being built around them and their husbands and their children and their schools and their churches and their civic organizations so i think that the the generations the youth that is our future as as the youth always are also differ substantially depending on what models the parents provide and who the parents are and it's going to be Largely driven by whether the parents are living in a rural or suburban area versus an urban area. And we have about half the country, maybe not in terms of population, but certainly in terms of geography, it's even more, living outside of the coasts. You know, we have East Coast and West Coast primarily that is um, largely insulated, uh, largely hyper educated, uh, largely dependent on. Uh, on on government to some degree, if you're at the lower classes, certainly at the higher classes, they're dependent in a different way ideologically. Uh, Those groups of people um, are not going to bring us out of this. But the middle part of the country will, and the people who are living on the coast but are just a little bit inland from the coast, in the more agrarian and rural areas, also completely different than the cities that are are overlooking the oceans, like San Francisco, San Diego, Los Angeles, uh, Seattle, all of those port cities. I think it's important for people to make this distinction because I I do believe in generalities. It's it's you have to use generalities in order to to reach conclusions, but the generalities have to not be overly blunt. And so I I prefer to say that it's it's not state to state, it's not right or left, Republican-Democrat entirely. I think the, the the most inclusive yet precise way to describe the differences in the youth and also the adult populations right now, psychologically speaking, is between urban and rural.
0: So if you are in one of these uh, rural areas and your mind is open and you, your critical thinking skills are present and you're in congruence with everything that you've mentioned, could you just give a few, we've got, we're getting close to the end, but if you give a few closing recommendations for those individuals to establish community and uh, I guess reinforce their beliefs so that they could be part of the remnant?
1: Well, the first thing that they've done and should have done, and probably already doing, uh, based upon what I wrote about in my my now published book, The, The United States of Fear, very first thing is to surround yourself with and support relationships with like minded people. And that means in person, if possible. And if you're in a rural area or a suburb, you can do that so easily. If you don't happen to know anybody personally right now, perhaps you're not married with kids and you're going to, you know, daycare and church, maybe you're not one of those more socially uh, integrated people, but you still believe and accept and acknowledge the, the ideas and beliefs that, that I'm speaking about right now. They're very easy to find. One of the key, one of the key things that I discovered personally, which I, I, I strongly suggest everyone else do is come out of the closet if you're in the closet right now, come out. Now I recognize it is far, far easier to come out of the closet as a transgender non-binary right now than it is to come out as a conservative. I recognize that, I'm not unrealistic. But even if you lose a few friends, colleagues, um, the respect, if you wanna call it respect in quotes, of some of the people that that used to uh, admire you in your local community, You will gain far, far more from high quality, supportive, loving, um, freedom, uh, defending um, people with integrity than anything that you've ever lost. It was Mickey Willis said to me after he filmed his first movie, he said, I didn't lose a single friend. Mm -hmm. I said, how is that possible? He said, because all the people that left, they weren't friends to begin with. Mm -hmm. And I completely agree with them. That has been true in my experience. It will be true in yours. All you have to do is you have to tolerate and accept the immediate temporary fire branding that will occur once you put your head up and you start to speak out. And I don't mean, you don't need to be an activist. You just need to start speaking from your heart and being honest, showing your own integrity. People will do one of two things. Like my driving instructor said in high school, if you wanna change lanes, It was 16 when he said this. (laughs) If you want to change lanes, don't worry about finding a space. Just put your blinker on. One of two things will happen. The jerk that doesn't want you to come into his lane, he's going to speed up to create space. Or the kind person who feels sympathy that you want to change lanes, he will slow down. Either way, you're going to have the space. And you're going to be able to change lanes. The same thing happens with ideology. The space will open up the people that don't support you they will leave they will create space for those who do those who hear you and agree with you they will come to you they will say thank god another person who shares my views what's your name can we meet for coffee have you heard about this group i organized we meet on thursdays over at the coffee shop i want you to introduce you to my friends that will happen to you and i think that is the first most important step that you can take to becoming a stronger, healthier, and more um, pro-freedom, pro-American uh, individual.
0: Well, that is great advice. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for uh, engaging a uh, dialogue about this important topic and all the work you've done and will continue to do. And we look forward to seeing you in Plandemic Three. Do you know when that's coming out?
1: The trailer just was released a few weeks ago uh, I believe that he has a few more interviews to complete, and his goal is to try to get it out in the next two to three months. So I'm looking at probably <laughs> March or April at the latest of 2022, perhaps sooner. That's
0: great, should be great. Mickey's a wonderful guy and lovely, really good. So I'm glad you're uh, integrated into this new uh, new episode. All right. Yeah. Well, and uh, so your book again. The the current one is the United States of Fear. And there, are there any other resources you'd like to direct people to?
1: I also run and manage uh, a podcast, which I think the listeners would be very interested in hearing if they're uh, curious to sure. know more about uh, what I do. Which is called Informed Dissent. Uh, <laughs> very clever. <laughs> dissent. D i s s e n t. And I I run that with Dr. Joe Barkey, who's a family practice doctor in Orange County, and we talk about the intersection of healthcare and politics. Hmm. And it's called Informed Dissent. I also just put up a new personal it, website.
0: Where is this uh, pl- platform? So because Descent, so many of these things are censored on YouTube. So do you have a different... Uh, correct.
1: We we don't use YouTube at all. We have a primary website called informeddescentmedia.com. And then we also publish the podcast on all of the major platforms. Uh, it's still up on Apple. It hasn't been banned yet. It's on, it's on Spotify. It's on uh, Buzzsprout or Sprout Buzz, whatever it's called. Um, there's about a dozen different sites that carry it. But if you can't find it there, go to informedissentmedia.com. You can also read about what I write, only writings, not, not audio, on my new personal website called dissidentmd.com. Mm-hmm. Dissidentmd.com. And I post my op-eds on there. I just uh, published a couple recently on statism, uh, which is a new topic that I'm exploring, as well as some that I posted in the Wall Street Journal from the previous year. And there's links to my book as well on that site.
0: Well, sounds great. You've been very active in uh, the world. If they don't appreciate you now, they will in the future. So thanks for everything you're doing. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much.